Love this podcast? Support this show through the ACAST supporter feature. It's up to you how much you give and there's no regular commitment. Just hit the link in the show description to support now. A lot can happen in three years, like a chatbot may be your new best friend. But what won't change? Needing health insurance. United Healthcare Tri-Term Medical Plans, underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, offer flexible, budget-friendly coverage that lasts nearly three years in some states. Learn more at UH1.com. This is Monsters Who Murder, Serial Killer Confessions. With Amanda Howard and Robert McKnight. Hello and welcome to a special edition of Monsters Who Murder Serial Killer Confessions. As usual, I'm joined by the serial killer whisperer Amanda Howard. Amanda, we're doing something a little bit different today. Yes, so there's not going to be a psychological profile, but something just slightly different just to ease us into a new season. Yes, we're going to be looking at the Zac Efron Netflix film, Extremely Wicked, Shockingly Evil and Vile. And that is the new film about Ted Bundy. A lot of people on our Facebook page have already seen it. And we're looking forward to hearing Amanda's views about the accuracy and just what it was like as a movie and a piece of entertainment. And we've also got some special announcements about the upcoming season of Monsters Who Murder Serial Killer Confessions, which will start next week for our Patreon subscribers and then the following week on the free download. So lots and lots happening, including some really exciting exclusive content for our Patreon subscribers, but more on that shortly. First of all, let's get to the news. And Kathleen Folbig, who was jailed for a minimum of 25 years in 2003 after being found guilty of the manslaughter of her first child, Caleb, who was 19 days old, and for the murder of her children, Patrick, 8 months, Sarah, 10 months, and Laura, 18 months, has testified for the first time in court this week. Folbig has been forced to answer questions about diary entries which seem to indicate she was responsible for the deaths of the children. Kelly Fedor at Nine News has more. Kathleen Folbig struggled to hold back the tears as she tried to explain what she meant when she wrote in her diary, stress made me do terrible things. That it's a broad spectrum of things that I'm using the word terrible for. Uh, it could be me placing my child down to let her cry for even 30 seconds. That's a terrible thing, in my view. The now 51-year-old repeatedly denying it was a reference to suffocating her four children, Caleb, Sarah, Patrick and Laura, a crime which landed her in jail for at least 25 years. Her ex-husband, Craig Folbig, in the gallery, as his barrister, Margaret Canine SC, compared the phrase terrible things to how she described her father. Kathleen Folbig was just 18 months old when he killed her mother. You, you considered him selfish and unthoughtful. I had no other way to look at it, yes. You didn't say that he was uh, an evil, um, dreadful murderer. Folbig told the inquiry, although she was convinced she had failed as mother, she thought things were happening outside her control. Asked if she believed some supernatural power had taken her children, she replied along those lines, yes, Your Honour. You mean she died, don't you? She died, yes. A bit of help. From God, fate or something else, not me. I've got to say, Amanda, the supernatural power taking her children feels a bit weird to me. 
no, they're trying to make as someone who was religious to make it sound like it's some ooh, big spooky person in the sky rather than she referring to God in, in, in so those sentiments. So she is referring to God? Yes, yes. And I have actually written down all of these diary entries and spoken to her about them. You know, what did you mean by this? What did you mean by this? Not saying I'm going to throw words at you like supernatural power and you're going to have to try and explain something that I'm making sound ridiculous. I have gone through But she could have just turned around and said, yeah, I believe God might have taken them. No, because she has to carefully phrase everything she says. And when and when someone's uh, taking the pierce by saying, oh, some supernatural power did it, she said, yes, God, or something along those lines. She's not saying that, you know, God sort of pointed her finger at, at these children and they died. But she's saying that um, it's not her that's done it, but, mm. you know, people believe, you know, that things happen for a reason and she believed that the babies died for some reason beyond her control. So well, that barrister certainly got the headline they were after because exactly. that was the supernatural line was the the line printed up in news yeah. websites all around the country. So and when um, and, and in when the court people, of public opinion, and when people lose their children, a lot of people who believe in God will come up to them and say, you know, they've been called back by God. You know, it's it's mm. it's, it's 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 God's rules. It's you know that that they're now an angel in heaven. You know, and they've been taken because there's a greater reasoning for all of this fate all of that sort of stuff and that's what she was saying in these diary entries she's not saying oh that you know aliens come down and did butt probes or some bullshit like that she's actually saying what everyone would have said to her when these babies died you know god has a plan and that's what these diary entries are actually reflecting and it's interesting um (laughs) i actually interfered in Kathleen was trying to call you and we were on the phone at the time and you didn't know it was her. And then did you actually end up catching up with her? I felt terrible. Here's this person you've got a high interest in trying to actually call you from prison and you missed the call because of me. Yeah, I I hadn't actually heard from her for a few weeks because she was very preoccupied, obviously, with Mm. all of this hearing going on. And and when she finally got a hold of me, it's like, you know, finally I can talk to someone I like to talk to rather than all of lawyers and all these horrible people that are just trying to destroy her. Um, She was actually saying that it's been pretty tough, especially when Craig, her ex-husband, was sitting there and, you know, they're all saying these words under their breaths at her about, you know, her being a child killer and all of this and she's just trying to focus on, on what's happening because, let's face it, if this comes down that we have an innocent woman in prison who didn't kill her four babies and the forensic evidence is starting to suggest that we have on one side all of this forensic information that is is stating that there was issues with these four children and we have mm. a severely depressed postnatal depression mother who has lost one, two, three, four children and her documentation of that you know, I, I would go with the science rather than um, someone's diary. Believe me, if, if, if you read the journal I've been writing since my husband died, my God, the things I've written in, in there, um, you know, sometimes that's the best way to heal is, is to get these words out, to get those dark thoughts out. And if she's saying, you know, mm. everyone's telling me that, that it's God's plan, that, that someone has, has taken my children. Now they're saying, oh, well, you're, you're saying that God's done it, but we all know that you have done it, you know. It's 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 there's it's, no it's doubt a big leap. the forensic evidence has to be the deciding factor in this. Um, I'm taking by this that the ex-husband absolutely believes she did it. Well, he didn't until he read the diary. Right. 
which is open to interpretation. But, and, and in I mean, of- I mean, we we spend years reading books and Shakespeare and saying, you know, he meant this when he wrote these words and he meant that when we wrote those words. And 90% of the time it's a load of bullshit. You know, it's just it's, it's, it's just a flight of fancy. And I really don't believe that we can take her at her word when a mentally ill woman who has lost babies is writing down her dark thoughts into a diary, which is for her treatment and for no one else's eyes except for her own. Fair enough. Well, we'll await this trial with lots of interest and we will keep listeners updated. Meanwhile, a famous Hollywood actor has been drawn into the trial of an accused serial killer in Los Angeles. Michael Gargiulo, also known as the Boy Next Door Killer, the Hollywood Ripper and the Chiller Killer, is believed to have killed at least 10 women, but is currently on trial for the murder of three women and an attempted murder over a 15-year period between 1993 and 2008. America's NBC News has more. The victim in Hollywood in 2001 was a popular 22-year-old fashion student, Ashley Ellerin, who was dating actor Ashton Kutcher. The prosecution said Gargiulo offered to do repairs around her house, even showed up uninvited at a party, allegedly in the background in this photo. Kutcher is expected to testify he went to Ellerin's home to pick her up for a post-Grammy party, but she did not answer the door. Mr. Kutcher looked in the window and saw what he thought was spilled wine on the floor. We believe now the evidence will show that was actually blood. No DNA evidence in that case, but there was four years later in the slang of Maria Bruno in El Monte, and again in 2008 when Michelle Murphy fought back and drove off her attacker. She survived. During trial, she will testify. Amanda, what else do we know about this alleged serial killer? Well, actually, it's it's not a well-known case, um, but there has been uh, at least ten victims, and yet he is saying, even though there's DNA, doesn't mean that I was the one that that was killed. Him, you know, like he he's saying, like I'm um, at Ashley's home, he was there, and so of course his dead DNA is going to be there. It doesn't mean that he ended up being the killer. It just seems to be that he claims that he was in the wrong place at at the wrong time, and and multiple, multiple times, at least ten times. So, but he's only on trial over four women at the stage right here this trial is about three murders and an attempted mm-hmm. murder and he's been in jail since 2008 so i mean it's been 11 years just to get to this point so mm-hmm. you know it's it's a long way to go until we know the full story because there is a couple of other counties and 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 states that are waiting to also um charge him with some cases and it, it's interesting you said this isn't a well-known case. The fact that there is a celebrity involved, Ashton Kutcher, that changes things. This will play out in the media big time now. It will now that we've got to this point because the pre-trial hearings were um, two years ago and so, I mean, that there was delays and delays and delays and delays and, that, and, and that's why we're in May 2019 before he's even standing trial but because of the Ashton Kutcher linked to this case and and a lot of people well know that he did lose his girlfriend this Mm. way like um we're aware that Keanu Reeves lost a girlfriend um in a car accident I think it was so there, there is these tragedies that happen in Hollywood that we do hear about but with this case it was something that has basically been forgotten all this time but now that there's a possibility that he will um 
that Ashton Kutcher will uh, speak at at trial because he did go to um, Ashley's house and he did, you know, look in a window thinking he'd seen spilt wine, which in fact was blood. I mean, she, she was stabbed 47 times. So there was a lot of blood. So he, he will actually have to, to testify about that unless there ends up being, you know, some, some sort of um, guilty plea that happens with with some of these cases that can go so far and then all of a sudden it gets stopped. But I think with the Ashton Kutcher, it's going to um, be probably on TMZ every day. Absolutely. And what does that do to someone psychologically when you have actually found the murder scene and not realised it? I mean, why would you think she'd been killed? You would look in the window and think, oh, she spilt wine, but I don't know. (laughs) Is there survivor guilt in that? Oh, absolutely. He would have had these thoughts of, you know, what if I'd I'd gone inside the house? What if I'd knocked? What if I'd called her half an hour earlier? Well, what if I had gotten dressed at her house? You know, um, Ashton Kutcher would be going through all of that, the what ifs, what if I got home? You know, what if we decided to not go to have the parties and and go somewhere Mm. else that night instead? You know, there's all of that. The what ifs play with people a lot. So this may give him a bit of closure to, to find out that he has absolutely no blame here. It's just one of those unfortunate things that he can't take back and no one can um, because basically it's the killer's fault and, and that's as far as he can take it. But we all have that sort of guilt when we're faced with these sorts of um, sliding door spots in time where we can't change what happens. Mm. Well, Cyprus's Justice Minister has resigned after a man admitted killing seven migrant women and girls in a case that went undetected for nearly three years. Jonas Nicolou said he was leaving his post for reasons of political responsibility, adding that he wasn't personally involved in the case. A 35-year-old Greek Cypriot army officer is in custody. Officials are accused of not properly investigating missing persons reports because the victims were migrants. Amanda, a politician taking responsibility, we don't see much of that these days. No, not really. But I mean, it it does happen a bit through through time. There has been cases where um, someone in in this sort of role does have to resign to save face for an investigation that did or didn't happen. Um, there is a lot of these sorts of of, of cases where um, people. If, if, if they're a person of colour, if they're a person of lower socioeconomic background, if they're a migrant like these victims were, a lot of times the, the police don't take notice and don't see the patterns. And so when someone actually confesses or, or, or gets um, arrested for these cases, the, the police have to then explain why they didn't investigate it further and see how many victims they could have actually saved Mm. if they had taken heed with the first, second, third, you know, up to seven victims here. You know, it's just, it's one of those things, it's it's, it's like the Grim Sleeper case in the US. Exactly the same thing happened. People ignored it because no one cared about the victims and it's just a shocking um, commentary on on our times that unless you're basically a, a, a white female, you know, rich girl, no one's going to care. Yeah. Unfortunately, it looks like that is what happened in this case. Absolutely. uh, I'm just, I am glad to see some responsibility being taken about it Mm -hmm. and that can lead to change. In just a moment, we're going to bring you up to speed with some exciting announcements for the podcast and we'll also look at the Zac Efron film that's just launched on Netflix. Monsters Who Murder, Serial Killer Confessions. We'll be right back. 
Hey there, it's Michelle Norris. I'm host of a podcast called Your Mama's Kitchen. When I travel, I'm usually looking for a way to find a taste of home when I'm not at home. And one of the things I love to do when I am at home is entertain. And Airbnb allows me to do that. When I was in California recently, I rented a house that had a great kitchen. And when we were sitting around the table, we're all thinking, we're in someone else's house. Someone could be in all of our homes as well. If you have a home, but you're not always at home, you have an Airbnb. Your home might be worth more than you think. Find out how much at airbnb.com slash host. Shocking celebrity secrets. Justin Bieber's word against mine. Backstage drama. All of a sudden, Dolly Parton walks into the room. And controversial opinions. I'm not saying she's been approached. I'm saying this is what I'm hearing is the crunching options. TV Black Box, the podcast where people who've worked in the TV industry spill their juiciest stories. Julie used to like to drink on set. TV Black Box, available in your favourite podcast feed. I like it. I can hear the sigh of relief from people all around the world going, thank God it wasn't the McKnight Tonight promo. <laughs> I was too. I liked that. That, that was really good. Amanda said, oh, this is different. <laughs> <laughs> so that is the TV Black Box podcast, uh, which is a TV-based podcast. And um, we've talked openly about we had a Patreon subscriber in America say, I tried to listen, Rob, but I didn't know who you were talking about. It's, it's very industry and Australian focus, but um, if you love your television gossip, it's a great place for gossip. You often find the stories we put in this podcast appear on news websites like the Daily Mail and news.com.au. This Just this week, uh, our story about Michelle Laurie appeared on websites all around the world. She is a beautiful person and opened up on yep. our podcast, and we love her. And you're, she's been very good to us as well, Amanda. She's had you on a couple of times. and Yep, and we did a recording with her that's supposed to be on, on this podcast, <laughs> but it didn't quite work out. Um, we have to get her to re-record because she didn't record her microphone, but we will get there. <laughs> yes, the technical issues that happen sometimes, <laughs> the things that could have been. Um, but regarding this very podcast, we've got a couple of initiatives that we'd like to announce. Season 5 starts next week for Patreon subscribers, then a week later for our regular free podcast download. And this is the exciting part. We are going to do a mega look at Charles Manson. Now, we were planning this, and the reason we're actually starting a week later than we had originally intended, and we're doing this bonus episode, is because... Charles Manson, there are so many facets, and we had a big discussion about whether we fit it into one part. It was pretty obvious straight away, Amanda, that it was more than two that it was at least two parts. Yes, and and, and as I keep digging and looking up uh, sound bites and interviews, and uh, I think he's he's been interviewed more than the Queen sometimes. <laughs> there's just there's so much out there, and when you add in the Manson family, and we sort of go into all of the people involved, um, there's just so much and so many people to to profile and analyze that um, we have so much to go through and. Ah, the deadline of next week is still going to be tough. <laughs> well, uh, we've already started a big... We, I say we. Amanda's already started a big <laughs> chunk of it. But um, I'm really excited about this. So we actually don't know how much of Season 5 this will take up. Mm-hmm. It may actually lead us all the way to the live podcast in um, June. So, yep. uh, so we, it, it's going to be quite possibly five parts. And we just think... 
by doing this, it will give us a real rounded um, version of what the different angles are because there's some high profile people outside of Charles Manson that you think are worth focusing on. And um, as you said, the Manson family... I don't know much about this. I'm really excited about this because I've been involved uh, where people have used the term, oh, he's part of the Manson family. When talking about when I worked on Sunrise or Studio 10, they called the Manson family. So, you know, there's this pop culture reference that I sort of get, but I'm really interested to get to the bones of it and what it's really all about. Absolutely. And and we're going to dispel the rumours that Charles Manson never killed anyone. So there's a bit of sizzle for you. (laughs) Um, And that will begin, as I said, next week for Patreon. Uh, Patreon subscribers get episodes a week earlier. And then a week later, it will appear on the normal podcast feed. But also, while we're talking about Patreon, Amanda and I have begun a new spin-off from Monsters Who Murder. Um, It's not Monsters Who Murder Serial Killer Confessions. It's Monsters Who Murder cold case collection and what we've actually done is we're looking at cold cases amanda you've been wanting to do this for a while and we just ended up doing it a couple of weeks ago and i was enthralled i loved it yes i loved um the way that you you play judge and executioner at the end of 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 the case (laughs) that we did do i found that a, a great off the cuff sort of profile that you did there so um i can't wait to do it again with the next case to see what your theory is Yes, well, so just to explain, um, as we were going through the thing, I started writing down and I was piecing it all together and at the end I said, okay, Amanda, I know what happened here because it was a mysterious death <laughs> and uh, and I laid it all out for her. She challenged me but I was able to answer a couple of questions and then I declared my verdict and actually people liked that. So <laughs> I, think, I think that will be fun to do every week. Um, yeah. So that's that's an exciting thing. That's going to be sporadic on the Patreon feed for the $10 plus subscribers. We really want to add value for our Patreon subscribers. So this will be something that just keeps coming out. Um, so to do that, just go to patreon.com slash mwmconfessions. That's patreon.com slash mwmconfessions. And... There is still the $5 tier, which gives you early access to episodes and the entire back catalogue. But the $10 tier gives you access to these bonus episodes as well. Uh, The $20 tier gives you a video conference with Amanda and I once a month as part of a group setting. And the $50 tier gives you a one-on-one video call with Amanda and myself where you can talk about anything and you also get a Monsters Who Murder cup. Yes. So lots, lots there to get involved with. Monsters Who Murder, the Patreon page. Thank you for everyone's support. It's patreon.com slash mwmconfessions. Now to our special of the week. Something a bit different this week. Instead of a psychological profile, we're going to take a closer look at the Ted Bundy film just released by Netflix. Extremely Wicked, Shockingly Evil and Vile, starring Zac Efron, is a chronicle of the crimes of Ted Bundy. From the perspective of his longtime girlfriend, who refused to believe the truth about him for years. Amanda, I enjoyed this film, but I don't think the viewer got a full sense of Bundy's brutality. What was your first reaction? Um, I think you're exactly right there. I think this is a examination of a relationship between someone who was a serial killer and his girlfriend. This is not a true crime film about the crimes of Ted Bundy. Um, it was good. I, I, I still enjoyed it, but I don't think 
if, if if you're going in like I did and expected this to be about Ted Bundy and about that um, multi-layered examination of what makes this psychopathic serial killer, you're going to be disappointed. Yeah, I actually thought they could have done the film where they still explored that relationship and... I think the way I saw it breaking down was setting up the relationship and then they could have gone and started having flashbacks to show how he was living this dual life because you never really got the sense. The problem is you go, it's not like a drama of the week where you go, was he guilty, was he not? Everyone knew mm-hmm. going in, Bundy did it. But you never really got a sense of the monster and I think that was my only issue with it. Like you, I really enjoyed the film. I, I It flew by really fast. I didn't find mm-hmm. it boring. I really enjoyed it. But I never got a sense of the man. No, exactly. Um, I was I, I was writing up a, a review of this this morning. and um, Which you can you find know, on tvblackbox.com.au. That's right. And I was, I was thinking about like – the audience knows the story or at least enough of the story yeah. to, to know what to kind of expect. We wanted to see that duality happen. We wanted to see the charming Ted Bundy who, who, who convinces everyone how great he is and we wanted to see the monster that is hidden behind that facade. We never saw the monster. We he, he um, Efron did a pretty good job but he was I one note. I thought he was fantastic. No, no, it, it was still too one note for, for me. It was still about, oh, you know, I'm charming and suave and sophisticated, but we never saw that click. We never saw that turn. We, we never saw that moment where he's staring in, in someone's eyes and we know that that's the moment. They don't have to go beyond that, but we never got that glimpse. We never saw that mask drop. Mm. You know, we saw one um, attack beside the um, Volkswagen in, in, in one shot. But even then, it, 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 was, it was too subtle. They're, 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 I mean, they don't change faces, though, though he, he was one of the most changeable um, killers of all time. There is no ability for him to um, play into the darkness. It, it, it kept too superficially charming. I agree with that. I still thought Efron did. I I really liked him. I I thought he was an inspirational choice for it. I was intrigued by his performance. I thought he did a great job with the material. That's exactly what what I I wrote in this review, that what he had to work with was enough to play that that role. And, And there is moments where you see Bundy and not Efron. So there was moments that he did pick it up and 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 the closing credits actually show a lot of those scenes that he played out yes. in the film, which, I mean, we've all done it several times. I mean, I've watched uh, Ed Kemper interviews against um, uh, Cameron Britton who, who played him in Mindhunter and how perfect it was and how nuanced it was and Rami Malik doing um, Freddie Mercury. We've all seen that live aid you know, shot for shot that occurred. Um, and and that's all fine and dandy to her do shot for shot. But we want to see what we don't, what what we haven't seen a hundred times before. I mean, Mark Harmon in, in The Deliberate Stranger did very similar scenes that Zac Efron does here 30 years later. But we're not seeing what's behind the curtain. And I, I, I found that disappointing. I wanted to see that mask drop. So is this more of a film as a piece of general entertainment for the masses rather than the true crime fan? The true crime fan is going to watch it regardless. Mm. And, you know, I watched it purely because this was the Bundy biopic that, that's coming out now 
um, we've been hearing about it for so bloody long. Yes. And it was filmed 12 months ago. I mean, there is also the Leonardo DiCaprio H.H. H. Holmes film that they've been talking about for, I think, a decade now. I doubt it'll ever be done now. Um, but we, we know that these stories are coming and... There was a lot of press about this, that it, it was glamorising Ted Bundy, and I think that that's exactly what this did because I thought, no, no, you, you can't glamorise someone that was suave and sophisticated and, and played a, a glamorous role. But that's all they did was glamorise him. Well, it's interesting because that's exactly the thing Zephron said he didn't want to do. When he was on The Ellen Show, he said he did not want to glamorise a serial killer. Um, have a listen to him and Ellen talking about the tone of the film. What, the thing I like about it is it's not the violent things that he did. It's from his girlfriend's perspective. So, yes. So you yes, can see why everyone thought he was innocent. Yes. The goal in the pers- was a very challenging one, and I'm uh, thrilled that it turned out the way that it did. I, do, I am not into uh, portraying a serial killer or anybody of this nature or glamorizing them in any way. However, telling a very... Uh, very introspective, intelligent t- uh, look and peek inside the mind of uh, two specific people. Liz, his longtime girlfriend, who knew him more than, better than anyone, and uh, also, as well as the general public, who thought he was innocent. Yep. Ted Bundy was a clean-cut, uh, white dude uh, who just did not seem white person. So talk about white privilege. What he got away with back then, nobody would be able to do today. Do you think the film succeeds on that level, the tone they were going for? Um, yeah, kind of. Yeah, I, I, I think it, it, it looks at the positive aspects of his relationship with Liz, but um, anyone who watched the confession tapes that are also on Netflix knows that that... Um, idealized relationship isn't actually how it went and they've actually taken out a lot of the evilness because he wanted to possess her he he had no desire to to love her he he wanted her as as an object like the objects that he he stole from victims and and potential victims he liked to um have ownership of things and he he actually was physically and mentally abusive towards liz but that isn't played out at all that doesn't come across at all and it's interesting you say that because that isn't how Efron approached the character. When he was talking about the character of Bundy, he had a totally different view. Have a listen to what he told Ellen. I mean, to, to her and to her kid, he was a really good guy. Yes. And yeah. all the evidence that started stacking up, it just looked like he was falsy and he just kept maintaining his innocence until the very last minute before his execution and she got him to confess. Exactly. Uh, and what another interesting thing is, is that he did crave certain things. He did have a longtime girlfriend. Do sociopaths, who in theory are only looking out for themselves or, or are maladjusted to, um, you know, other people's feelings, uh, do they not have personal needs? Do they not have things that they want that they desire? Uh, is love not one of those things? Now, see, I, you're laughing, and sh- your hand, your hand is in uh, over your face at the moment. <laughs> Because that jarred with me, because everything we've talked about was all about power and control when it comes to serial killers. But Zach is saying that Bundy loved Liz. Did he love Liz? Uh, 
would be likely what he considered love, but I would more consider it possession. So um, he knew the pieces of his life he, he had to have to appear normal to everyone to, to get away with what he could. So one of those things is to ensure that he has a pretty girl on his arm. Because that's mm. part and parcel mm. of, of what occurs in a normal relationship. And a kid helps add to that facade. Absolutely, absolutely. And and even in, in the film they do play it right that their first night together, they don't actually sleep together but they spend the time in bed together but, but there is actually no sex that first night and he makes her, her breakfast that next day because he knew this is what he had to do. But mm-hmm. he also says in, in, in the confession tapes that he would often do these sorts of things that most of us would consider love but it was out of guilt because he would be away for days at a time or away at school or killing the next victim and he would come home with guilt and so he would know that if he vacuumed that is all that would make her happy for the next couple of days and so he knew the pieces that would keep the peace as best as he could without knowing how to show the actual affection that most people need there was something that never really played true in the film to me because of the way the whole relationship was portrayed there was no motivation for her turning him into the police and calling them up and naming him when she saw the sketch. I didn't get a good sense of why she did that. Did she feel threatened by him? Did she think it was a possibility? Why did she call the police? Because it was a guy who looked like the sketch, whose name was Ted, who drove a light-coloured VW Beetle, who, who was in Washington and Utah at the time of the killings she was putting one and one together and getting two and she knew that she just sort of had to put it out there hoping that the police would say to her yeah it's definitely not him go away and and they kind of did they actually told her that's the wrong color car yeah you know and that was it and so she sort of left it at that i mean so many times this has happened um paul bernardo which is a, a, a case we did in one of our earlier seasons they um his friends would actually put pictures of the sketch of him on his desk in his office and say, yeah. ha-ha, this looks like you. You know, people just assume that the people around them aren't killers. Yes, yes. And, but, and but, especially but someone you're sharing a bed with. Yeah, exactly. And and who is helping you raise your daughter. Mm. How accurate was the film? Um, it, it got a lot of what we know right. Um, knowing what I do about the case and what a lot of true crime um, fans will know about the case, they did a pretty good job of showing the relationship between Bundy and Liz. It does not show the crimes of Ted Bundy. It's, it's not a true crime film that you can go in and watch. Now, a lot of true crime films don't go into the crimes, but it is about the crimes and the investigations and the trials. Mm. This one's about how this killer possesses one girl whilst going out and killing others without actually even talking about them except later in the trial when they show the teeth um, uh, photos and all of that. And the fact that they did Zac Efron's teeth to match it was actually a, a, a good hint at it. Like they even had that chip on, on, mm-hmm. on his front teeth, which was really well done. But I think um, if... If you want to see the crimes, you can. I think there's a film called Bundy. Um, if you want a longer investigation 
into the cases and how the computer systems were developed and everything, I'd watch The Deliberate Stranger. If you want someone to recreate the footage that we've all seen on YouTube of Ted Bundy playing out these scenes, watch Zac Efron do them in this film. Did that hacksaw moment actually happen where he wrote hacksaw on the window? No. um, There is no proof that Liz went and saw him later. Now, this movie is is um, based on a book that she wrote in 1981 and he was executed in 1989. Um, so all of that sort of, you know, later flashback sort of thing of her, her saying, please release me, I don't want to, you know, live with, with this hanging over me. None of that happened. It's just conjecture. Um, but he did actually say during one of his interviews that um, the head, he did have the head and he actually burnt it in her fireplace. Right. So that's actually what, what happened. But see, they, you know, so why do that instead of that? I don't know. What What was the turning point then? How did she realise he was a killer and what then led him to accepting the guilt and being vocal about the guilt of being the killer? Well, I mean, they broke up quite a long time before all of this. Like, um, she had broken up with him. Earlier. Yes, when he was in prison. Yeah, and and then once he was released and after a couple of cases and all of that, he got back with her purely so he could dump her. Right. So so he dumped her. This, you know, I love her, love her, love her, love her, is just a rose-coloured glasses um, that, look Because that's at not how it played out in the film at all. He was still chasing her to the very end. Yeah, well, eight years of that film... Anything after 1981 is their own story. It's not from the source book that Liz wrote. So I come back to that other question because he was saying he was innocent, 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 innocent. The movie sort of indicates that Hacksaw moment is the proof she gets and goes, you assume she sees Hacksaw and goes and tells him, you're saying that didn't happen. So what made him start to give interviews and be honest about the killings? Well, the whole reason he was facing trial was because he had confessed. There is a confession. They, they, they play that out in the film, in, in the trial, saying um, that the confession didn't make it on tape because he asked them to stop the tape. Don't know about that. I'm pretty sure that that probably didn't happen, but there is a confession that happened before the trial that he then um, recanted and that's why they went to a full trial because he he pleaded not guilty. I must have missed that in the movie. Oh, okay. He was actually um, cross-examining the detective. Uh, He stood up and did... um, an objection because his lawyer. Yes, wouldn't. I remember that yeah, bit. Yeah, okay. yeah, but that was about the confession. Yeah, right. So, um, but he did a lot of interviews over the time, and he realised that to remain relevant and important, he needed to talk about the cases. And so he did a bit of a roundabout, you know, third-person discussion, which we talked about when we did the case study yeah. on this one. Um, but he did so many interviews and he, he started to do what Henry Lee L- Lucas later did and that was just to confess to, you know, a police officer would turn up and say, I have this girl, and he'd go, yeah, it's mine. And sort of a lot of that was happening as well. He, d- they- he then wanted infamy. Yeah, yeah. So he wanted a high high count and we know that there's probably 30 but probably a lot more and that's 
in the text at the end of the film. But there is um, so much more in like the tapes and and the other books that are out there that actually go into who he was and what he did rather than this sort of fantastical hacksaw thing that was the breakdown of the confession. No, no. It would have been interesting for them to start showing him doing some of those interviews and going back to Liz watching these and her reaction and the horror and having that overcome her, that would have been a very powerful moment yeah. when he started confessing. Mm-hmm. Um, okay, so what's your final thoughts on the movie? Um, as a study of how a psychopath possesses someone and, and her um, warped sense of it, it's probably a good film. But mm-hmm. um, I don't know. It's, it's not... It's not my favourite, but I I did enjoy it and I will watch it again. Um, I'm currently now re-watching The Deliberate Stranger. I'm halfway through the, that two-parter because I found that that was a bit more interesting, um, though there's a lot of stuff they could have probably cut out. <laughs> but I think, I think um, we're at a point now in society that – we are so restricted and the amount of complaints that would come up if, if they did do the crimes because people say that they're glorifying violence, if they don't do the crimes, we'll, we call them superficial. I mean, it is a balancing act and I think this is where we are currently with these sorts of cases that when we do these films, it's such a fine line that you're going to disappoint one audience or, or the other and they'd rather err towards the um, lower rating rather than the higher uh, Rating with the crimes. Sure. Well, you can read Amanda's full review at tvblackbox.com.au. That's tvblackbox.com.au. And if you want to listen to our Cold Case Collection episodes, go to patreon.com slash mwmconfessions. Just remember, they're only available to the $10 plus subscribers. And we'll see you next week for a brand new season of Monsters Who Murder Serial Killer Confessions. 